0: And warm welcome to Torah Studies. This is our weekly look at the Torah portion, and we are going to do a deep dive tonight. If there's ever been a class that takes a deep dive into a Torah portion, my friends, you found the right class tonight. This is where you want to be. Mom, welcome. It's great to see you. Alex, welcome. Who else joined that I didn't welcome? Marnine, great to see you. And I think we got everybody in. Okay, so this year... This year, hey, this year is a very special year. Why is it special? Because it is excellent. It is the Shemitah year. First of all, Shemitah is a great word. Shemitah is a great word. Oh, hold on one second. Before we go further, before we go any further, I have to, we have to uh, say a very special um, dedication. Um, Here we go. Tonight's class is sponsored by Adina Malka. Am I getting this right? Yes? Yes, I think I got this right. Tonight's class is sponsored by Adina Malka. In honor of her son Ben's marriage to... Uh, I, th- I may mess up the pronunciation, but Milena... Uh, how do you pronounce your last name? Bingray. Bingray. Milena Bingray on April 22, 2022... Benjamin, Yitzchak Yisrael, and Melena Bas Stella. So their, their life should be blessed, and you should have nachas, and everyone should be healthy and happy, gesund, and only, only blessings, let us say, amen. Mazel so that Mazel <laughs> Good. So that's a dedication. Now, tonight we're going to speak about a mitzvah that is happening right now in Israel. So right now, this year is a Shemitah year. And Shemitah means sabbatical. So, and also, also it's a great word to say. If you ever like, want to just like, say a word, it's, it's like Shemitah, it just rolls off the tongue. Um, now, here's the interesting thing. What is Shemitah? Let's start from the beginning. Shemitah is a biblical law that says that once every seven years, it's an objective count, once every seven years, it is a Shemitah year, sabbatical year, and that means that all... Uh, fields in the land of Israel are to remain fallow, not worked, not plowed, not sowed, not harvested, not reaped. Every, the field should remain <coughs> unworked for the seventh year. It's kind of like Shabbat. On Shabbos we rest. Every seven days we rest. Every seven years we rest the land. The earth itself is in a state of rest. This is an ancient biblical mitzvah. As we'll see tonight, there are a lot of details to the mitzvah. And we're actually going to get into a deep dive into a lot of these details uh, regarding the mitzvah of Shemitah. As far as is the mitzvah of Shemitah, uh, um, uh, is, it, is it done or observed? Is it observed today? It's a, yeah, it is. But it's not, according to most opinions, it's not a biblical mitzvah today. It's a rabbinic mitzvah today. Let me explain. The mitzvah of Shemitah is associated with the mitzvah of Yovel. So Shemitah is every seven years. It's the sabbatical year every seven years. Yovel is the Jubilee year every 50 years. So Shemitah, according to, according to our understanding, Shemitah is observed. You observe the sabbatical year when you observe the Jubilee year. But you only observe the Jubilee year when most, when most Jews are living in the land of Israel, which is currently not the case and has really not been the case for a few thousand years. So it's when the majority of Jews, <laughs> excuse me, are living in the land of Israel, that you do Yovel, that you would have to do Shemitah. However, Shemitah is considered to be today a rabbinic obligation. So it's still a mitzvah, but it's not necessarily uh, binding based on Torah law, but it's based on rabbinic law, which is, you know, which the Torah says follow the rabbis. So essentially, it's, it's got the same status, more or less. And thus, farmers today in Israel observe Shemitah. Now let's go back to the origin. Where does Shemitah come from? What are the verses that speak about this? Let's start from the beginning, and let's open up our books or our booklets to page number 56. And Donna, if you don't mind getting us started with text number one, this is from the Torah Leviticus I'm going to put up on the screen. Let's get rolling, please.
1: The land's rest, and God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and you shall say to them, when you come to the land that I am giving you, the land shall rest on a Sabbath to God. You may sow your field for six years, and for six years you may prune your vineyard and gather as produce. But in the seventh year the land shall have a complete rest, a Sabbath to God. You shall not sow your field, nor shall you prune your vineyard. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest, and you shall not pick the grapes you had set aside for yourself, for it shall be a year of rest for the land. And the produce of the Sabbath of the land shall be yours, to eat for you for your male and female slaves, and for your hired worker and resident who live with you. And all of its produce may be eaten also by your domestic animals and by the beasts that are in your land.
0: Thank you very much. So I want to highlight, you know, I have this open online, but you can follow along as I go through this also in your booklets or book. I want to highlight a few features of this mitzvah. So number one, the mitzvah begins when the Jewish people enter the land of Israel. Okay, because the mitzvah, be, literally the communication starts, the mitzvah begins with the preamble, when you come to the land that I am giving you, dot, dot, dot. So in other words, this mitzvah only begins when the Jewish people will enter the land of Israel. So that's number one. They were At this point, they were still in the desert, and they would be in the desert for another 39, 40, or 40. 39 years or so, so this is this was going to take a while for this mitzvah to kick in. Nonetheless, they're getting this commandment now. Okay, and what is the mitzvah? The land shall rest. Okay? The land is going to rest. What does that mean, that it should rest? So the Torah specifies four things right? Once again, the Torah says the land shall have a complete rest in verse 4. But if you look at verse 4, at the end of the verse, there are four items. Verse 4 and 5 mention four specific activities that cannot be done in the seventh year, the year of Shemitah, the sabbatical year. Number one, you shall not sow your field, no planting, okay? Nor shall you prune your vineyard, no pruning the vineyard. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest, so no reaping, and you shall not pick the grapes you had set aside for yourself. No picking the grapes. So there's four prohibitions. Don't sow your field. Don't prune your vineyard. Don't reap the, your, harv- your harvest. And do not pick the grapes. These are the four prohibitions. As we'll see a little bit later, this mitzvah of Shemitah has four prohibitions and one positive commandment. The prohibitions are against sowing, pruning, reaping, and picking. Don't do those. And the positive mitzvah is, the positive mitzvah is, rest. you shall, yes, the land shall have a complete rest. It's about giving the land rest. But are oh, you saying why? Yeah. Oh, excellent question. So Linda's asking why. Why this mitzvah? Good. Excellent question. So the commentators discuss it. You know, there's, there's different ways of understanding it. One way of understanding it is that it's for us to remind us that we don't own the land. In other words, even as we own the land, once every seven years, we relinquish ownership. It's not ours. We don't manipulate the land. We don't, we don't work the land. We don't own the land. It belongs, to, it belongs to everybody. Everyone can eat from it. So once every seven years, we're reminded, La Hashem Haaretz the, the earth belongs to God. It's not ours. Six years, we pretend that we own things. The seventh year, we remind, we're reminded that at the end of the day, God's in control. That's one message. Another message is, it's good for the field. It's good for the field for it to lay, to lay fallow for a year. It actually helps it rejuvenate. It's kind of like any sabbatical, right? If you think about it, any sabbatical it's good. It helps rejuvenate. It helps get the creative juices flowing. Shabbos is great. You know, it's a day of rest, but it's also a day to regain our energy so that we can go back, you know, in the next, the next week with renewed vigor. Not that we should think of Shabbos as a preparation for work, but, you know, you do have that added, that added uh, fringe benefit. Anyway, there, these are two of the ideas that are uh, thought of regarding the sabbatical year, and certainly there are more. But there's one point that I need to focus on before we continue, and before we get into the deep dive of the details of this mitzvah. And that is, if you look at verse number 2, I'm going to put it back on the screen, but look in your booklets on page 56. Look at verse number 2. Oh, I'm sorry. Look at verse number 1. <laughs> the very first verse of the Torah portion. It says, And God spoke to Moses... On Mount Sinai, saying... Now, most of the verses that start like this say, And God spoke to Moses, saying... and you have, That's the most common verse in the Torah. Hashem, al Moshe God spoke to Moses, and this is what he said. But in this verse, there's an extra... An extra two words in the Hebrew, three words in the English. On Mount Sinai, Behar Sinai. The question is, why does the Torah add that little location... Why does it add that little, um, uh, little shout-out to the, to the old GPS? Like, oh, where did this communication happen? I'm Mount Sinai. Why do we need to know this? And, 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 and were there other, were, uh, it's weird. I'll tell you why it's weird. Because the, the, the giving of the Torah at Sinai we read about all the way back in the book of Exodus. This is like a full book later in the Torah. We're in Leviticus, where like a dozen or more Torah portions after the story of, of Sinai and suddenly the Torah says, oh, by the way, God told this to Moses at Mount Sinai. It's like, where have you been? And, and were the other mitzvot not told at Sinai? And if they were, why are we only specifying this one? The whole thing is bizarre. So Rashi comes to the rescue. Rashi with his cape, with a little R on the back, whoosh, he flies in. And Rashi helps us make sense of this otherwise confusing verse. The question that Rashi is addressing Why does the Torah add the words Bahar Sinai on Mount Sinai? By the way, the word Bahar Sinai, that's where the name of the Torah portion comes from, Bahar. But the whole thing is superfluous. Bahar Sinai. Why do we need to know where it happened? Just just, here's the mitzvah. So let's take a look at Rashi. Linda, if you don't mind, to read text number two. Here we go. Take it away, please. Okay,
2: on Mount Sinai, what special relevance does the subject of Shemitah have with Mount Sinai? Were not all the commandments started from Sinai? This teaches us that just as with Shemitah, its general principles and its finer details were all stated from Sinai. Likewise, so it is with every mitzvah, their general principles were stated together with their finer details at Sinai. And why is Shemitah used as the example to prove this rule? The explanation is, unlike other mitzvot, we do not find the laws of Shemitah reiterated on the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy.
0: Continue one more more little piece of this.
2: Thus, we are compelled to say that its general principles, finer details, and explanations were all stated at Sinai. This, in turn, tells us that every mitzvah that was conveyed to Moses came from Sinai, including their general principles and finer details, and that the commandments delineated in Deuteronomy were merely repeated and reviewed on the plains of Moab, but not originally given there.
0: So Rashi gives us a a very interesting perspective on this. And uh, Rashi says... The reason why the Torah specifies that this was taught, these laws of Shemitah, of the sabbatical year, were taught to Moses on Mount Sinai, is to tell us that, to, to, to extrapolate from this mitzvah to all the mitzvah in the Torah. Just like the mitzvah of Shemitah, the general mitzvah, and the details, were all taught to Moses on Mount Sinai, so to every mitzvah of the Torah, the general mitzvah and all the details were taught to Moses on Mount Sinai. Uh, famously, Moses ascended the mountain after the the revelation at Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain and stays there for 40 days and 40 nights. By the way, when he finished those 40 days and 40 nights, that's when the Jews were worshiping the golden calf. So he spent 40 days and 40 nights. What was he doing up there? He was learning Torah. And what was he learning from God? He was learning all of the mitzvot and all of their details. So Rashi says, that's why the Torah tells us, that God taught these laws to Moses, the laws of Shemitah, the details, not just the general law to rest for seven years, but specifically don't sow and don't prune and don't reap and don't pick the grapes, right? These specific, the nitty-gritty of the midst of Shemitah, the details were also taught to Moses on Mount Sinai. So, lest you think, lest you and I think, that God just gave Moses the general rules at Sinai and then over the 40 years kind of filled in the details, no! That's not what happened. All of the details were communicated to Moses on Mount Sinai. Are you with me in Rashi? Yeah. Yes? Yeah. Rashi is clear? Yeah. Why does the Torah say that God told these laws to, taught these laws to Moses on Mount Sinai? So that we should learn that God not only communicated the general principles, but also the specifics of all of the mitzvot at Sinai. Okay. What's
1: the significance of transmitting that message
0: through this mitzvah? Oh! oh <laughs> Don Donna's asking the killer question. Why did God choose shmita specifically? Because to... it's
1: his Sabbath,
0: right? Hold on, we're gonna get there. By the end of the class, we're gonna answer your question. Don, let me reiterate your, let me repeat your question so that everybody can hear. Donna's question is great. So we have one mitzvah that gives us all the details and says that it was taught to Moses at Sinai and we learn from this mitzvah that all of the mitzvot with all their details were taught at Sinai. But the question is why was the the teacher? Why is the lesson extracted from the laws of Shemitah of all of the mitzvot? Why was this mitzvah, the law, the mitzvah, the the, mit, the mitzvah of the Sabbatical year? Why was this chosen to be the one that teaches us about this general rule that all the details were, were taught at Sinai. Great question. We're going to get there soon. But first, I want to give you an overview of the rules of Shemitah. And I actually meant to, I actually printed it out and then left the book and the printout at my house. doesn't make a difference. I have it on my phone. I want to read to you some details about the laws of Shemitah, the way it's practiced today <laughs> in Israel. So first of all, first <laughs> and foremost, what types of fields are Uh, involved in the Shemitah sabbatical. Here we go. This includes fruits, vegetables, grains, and legumes that grow in the land of Israel. They are all subject to Shemitah laws. So if you have a farm, you have a field, if you have something, if if you're growing fruits, vegetables, grains, legumes, it is subject, they are subject to the laws of Shemitah. Shemitah began... Rosh Hashanah of this year. So as of Rosh Hashanah, 5782, so about six months ago, that is when the Shemitah year began. Shemitah means that the, far, the farmer is not allowed to work the field. No, pl- no plowing, no sowing, no reaping, no harvesting, no cutting, garnish, you cannot work your field. Cannot work your field. Who eats the food that's on the field this year? The answer is everyone or anyone. Shemitah produce is ownerless and free to use by anyone. In other words, the owner of the field doesn't have first dibs on the produce. Anyone can walk in. You ever drive by a farm and you see like, or like an apple orchard. and You're like, wow, that looks really good. Welcome to Shemitah, baby. You just drive by, <laughs> grab it, and it's legal. It's legal. It's kosher. This is the year to go visit Israel. This is the year to visit Israel. Let's go. Let's go. Let's, let's let's grab, right? Free produce. Okay. Now, how does it work? How to eat the fruit? You may eat the fruit of the shemitah year in the land of Israel, as normally you don't eat it um, any any other way. However, how do you dispose of the fruit of shemitah? Now you're wondering like why would it be different? Because the shemitah fruit. Has a has an additional level of holiness. So listen to this. You may, yeah, you may not put shemitah peels, cores, and other waste parts into the garbage. See that you must put them aside to rot before disposal. They have to actually become change status before you get rid of them. Um, compost. Compost. Yeah, very eco, very eco friendly. This uh, the shemitah business. Next. Um, Canned fruit from Israel. Canned fruit. You may not buy canned fruit or other produce from Israel if the produce grew during a Shemitah year. This may be a problem with exports from Israel. Check your can of, uh, of, of fruit from Israel. Uh, fruit, make sure it's not from Israel. If it is and it's from this year's crop, it could be problematic. Now listen to this. Listen to this. You cannot work your field in the Shemitah year. Imagine the scenario, you're walking through a field, and you have a bottle of water, but instead of drinking it, you do the old squeeze, you know what I'm talking about? You squeeze the bottle, right, because you're sweating, you squeeze the bottle, and the water drips on the ground. ground. Guess what you just did? You You watered a field, and guess what you just did? You violated the law. You broke the law. Right. No, you got to be careful. You got to be careful. Listen to this. It's, it's a wild thing. In Israel, you may not pour water on the ground during a Shemitah year if plants will benefit. So assuming plants will benefit, you cannot do that. You got to be careful. You with me on this? This is kind of cool. Yes? You guys with me so far? All right. Next, what about spitting seeds? Huh? Which happens a lot there. What about spitting seeds during Shemitah year? Because is that sowing? So in Israel, yes. You that may, would be sowing. Oh, so listen to this. You may spit seeds on the ground only provided if they are inedible. In other words, if they are I guess seeds that will not What well, says inedible? I'm assuming it means that they're not going to grow. But if they're seeds yeah. that would grow, then it could be highly problematic. So, if you're like eating a fruit and you ch- and you just like toss the pit or whatever it is, and that could create growth?
1: That peach
0: pit. Yes. Do not. By the way, my peaches did not come in. I was wondering. It's so a peaches, fraud. Really? It's a fraud. Yeah.
1: It wasn't
0: that the. Oh. Because
1: of last year. Because
0: the, the the squirrels yeah. last year. I don't know. No, it's just That's, it, it it's doesn't. It's a sabbatical year. It's a sabbatical <laughs> year. Oh, my my peach tree, my peach tree that? is sabbatical year. Oh. Because
1: you were born in Israel.
0: There you go. It all comes together. It all comes together. They knew it was a rabbi's <laughs> they, house. They knew it was a rabbi's house. Who was born in Israel? Now, listen to this. You may not buy... Listen, this is very cool. You may not buy wine from grapes grown in Israel during the Shemitah year. Oh. Um One second. How do you know that? How do you know that? I don't know. You, you hope that whoever's producing kosher wine from Israel is being careful with these laws and knows what to export and making sure that it's not from the stuff that you can't, uh, you can't taste. Um,
1: There's labels on, the,
0: on, on everything. Yeah, 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 everything should be labeled. It's just something to pay attention to. So these are some of the laws. This is just a very basic outline. I just found a, found a good, a good modern, very modern practical guide of a few points that I just decided to read to you. But now I want to get into some yeshiva style learning. You ready? Let's do a deep dive into yeshiva-style learning. And what we're going to do tonight is what's called the brisker style of Talmud study, a gemara. Now, the brisker was Urchaim of Brisk, known as, his name was Urchaim Soloveitchik, he was known as the brisker of. And he conceived of a way of studying Talmud that's based on a, a very rigorous analysis where sometimes you look at uh, an area of law, and you have what's called a hakira. Hakira means you can look at it this way or that way. And depending on how you look at it, the law changes and everything changes. So I'll give you an example. You ever heard of the philosophical question you know, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around, does it make a sound? Yes. Yeah. So let me break that down. If we were studying, Tal- if this was a Talmudic piece and we were studying the brisker method of Talmud study, here's how I would break it down. It would break down along the lines of Gavra and Chefza. Let me explain the terms, gavra, chefza. Gavra means the person, chefza means the item. Or in English, we might say subject, human subject, or object. Okay? If you think about the subject, the human subject, the tree falls and there's no gavra, there's no person around. So if sound is this, if the concept of sound is the, if the definition of sound is that a person hears something, So when there's no person, guess what? Doesn't make a sound, or there's no sound, theoretically, right? If you go by the (laughs) chefza, if you go by the object, not the subject, the object itself, the tree, so the tree presumably crashes down and makes a noise, so the tree itself is making a sound. So the question is gavra chefza, or it's kind of like you might use another analogy. Maybe um, you would use like a, a nut allergy analogy. Wow. Try to say that three times fast. A nut allergy analogy. There you go. An allergy analogy. You would say that peanuts are an allergen. Allergen. Peanuts are an allergen. Okay? That's the chefth. Peanuts are an allergen. That's the kefza. That's the object. Or you could say it's so that um, Yankel is allergic to peanuts. That's, that's a different, right? You're focusing on the person. So it's either the thing or the person. You with me on this? You, this you can, whenever you study Talmud, whenever you have a mitzvah, you can look at it, not, maybe not every mitzvah, but a lot of mitzvah. so you can try to figure out...
1: From the perspective,
0: you're saying. Yeah, which perspective is it? So let me give you a simple example regarding Shemitah. I said before that there are five different commandments regarding Shemitah. There are five different mitzvot. Four are negative, and one is positive. What are the four negative? It says, don't sow, don't prune, don't reap, and don't pick. Those are four things. Those are four don'ts. Good. And then it says, the land should rest. Stop right there. The positive mitzvot of the land should rest. Yeah. I'll put it up on the screen. So you see it. You can open up your booklets. I'll tell you exactly where to look. It actually says it twice. It's on page 56. Um, It is verse 2. The land shall rest on a Sabbath to God. The land shall rest. Let me ask you a simple question. The land shall rest. Is it Gavra or Hefza? Is it a mitzvah on you or a mitzvah on the land? You understand my question? Is it a mitzvah on you that you should make the land rest by not doing things, or is it a mitzvah on the land that the land should rest? Well, first you, right? Well, that, it's a it's a question. That's a question. Is it a mitzvah? Is it that you shouldn't work the land? But I mean, there are a negative pro, negative prohibitions about that. But a positive mitzvah that you should do whatever it takes to not work the land and to let the land rest, or is it a mitzvah on the land? The land should not rest. What's the nafka minil Allah? What's the difference in, in, in Jewish law? Can somebody give me an example where, where you would find a distinction, whether it's gavra chetz, whether this, this, this mitzvah is on the person or on the land itself? Can we come up with a scenario? I'll give you a scenario. You ready? What if you hire someone who's not Jewish to work your field? You with me? So did you work the field? No. No? So if the mitzvah is on you not to work the field, I don't work the field. You paid
2: me to go. Ah,
0: right. yeah, I don't work the, I don't work the field. Push
2: me to go instead of a Shabbos
0: It's Kind of, I don't work the field. I don't work the field. So I could say, like, it's not me. Whereas if the mitzvah is on the land, the land shouldn't be worked, then I have an obligation, right? To make sure the land doesn't get worked by anybody. I can't hire someone to work the land because it's the mitzvah's on the land. You with me on this? Is it a mitzvah for me not to work the land, or is it a mitzvah for the land not to be worked? So I'm gonna write it in the chat because the the, the the request was there in the chat. Okay, we have gavra and chefza. Gavra. We're stewards of the land. Gavra equals person. Okay, and chevzah chevzah equals object. Okay, in this case it would be the land. So the question is, is the mitzvah of Shemitah on the person, you don't work the land, or is the mitzvah on the land that the land should not be worked and we have to make sure that it doesn't get worked? You with me? So again, the question is, the, the, the nafka, the difference would be if, um, if someone hires someone who's not Jewish to work the land, and they work the land, then you didn't do it, but it was done, so that would be, um, that, would be that. Now, let's take a look at this, at this conversation in the text, all right? Open up your booklets to page 59. I'm going to put up on the screen. Let's take a look. I'm going to do some reading over here. Actually, Lolly, we're up... Well, hold on. Did we do... Linda, you read, right? Okay, so Lolly, we're up to text 3A and 3B. Um, If you're up to it, please read text 3A. Uh, It is a
1: positive commandment to rest from performing agricultural work or work with trees in the sabbatical
0: year. Take a look at what Maimonides writes. He says it's a positive commandment to rest from performing agricultural work or work with trees. So who does that sound like the mitzvah is on, the person or or the field? Sounds like the mitzvah is based on text, 5A, text 3A. Sounds like the mitzvah is on the person, person right? It's the person should rest from the Okay, but take a look at text 3B, also Maimonides. Uh, Lolly, please read this one as well. Uh, the earth should rest in the seventh year from all labor performed because of it. And this one says the earth should rest in the seventh year, which makes it sound like the mitzvah is on the earth. The question is, is the mitzvah on you or is the mitzvah on the earth? Is the obligation on the person or on the land itself? Which one is it? Now, obviously, the land can't keep that mitzvah itself. It needs us to help. But, but the question is, who, who initially is the mitzvah on? Is it on the person or on the land? Maimonides is giving us mixed messages, right? And these are both from the same laws of Shemitah and Yovel in his work called Mishneh Torah. In one place, he says, it's a positive commandment to rest from performing the work. That means it's on the person. In the other place, he says, the earth should rest, which makes it sound like it's on the land. The Rebbe explains, text four, I'll read this one. Text four. One of the practical differences this distinction would make, because it's not just a distinction without a without a uh, without a difference, it's a distinction with a difference. If the mitzvah is that the Jews' land should be left alone, untouched in the sabbatical year, in other words, if the mitzvah is on the land. Right, then it makes no difference who is to blame for violating this restraining order. Regardless of who does the work on Jewish-owned land, even if it was a Gentile, the landowner is liable for violating the positive mitzvah. If the mitzvah is on the land, then it doesn't matter who worked it, it was a violation. However, if the mitzvah is addressed to the person, then when a Gentile works in the field, the landowner is not considered to be violating the mitzvah because he didn't do it. He's, he owns the land. He didn't work the land. Some other guy worked the land. Don't look at me. I didn't do it. Whereas if the is on the land, the land should not be worked, and you stood by while someone did the work, you're guilty of not ensuring that the land not be worked. So that's, again, the, the different ways to look at it. There's another... Yeah?
1: I a So if you grow things in a greenhouse, is that...
0: That has nothing to do with these lands, this law? That's an excellent question. That's an excellent question. That's an excellent question. In other words, if you're growing hydroponic, right? Is that, is that the phrase? Hydroponic? Oh, yeah. If you're dro- growing hydroponic produce, it's not growing from the ground of Israel. Right? It's not attached to the ground. It's just growing, you know, magically <laughs> through technology, right? It's like, through, through technology, but it's not connected with the earth per se. It's not like from the ground then it's very, we would have to look it up to be sure, but it is very likely, or it is likely, that it would not be under the same restrictions because it's not growing from the land. Unless somebody knows otherwise, and I'm speaking incorrectly, or can look it up, somebody can Google it. It's a very interesting question. It's a great question. Um, Donna and Fred, are you aware of this? I know that your your son-in-law and daughter are involved in this type of farming. Is that... uh,
1: Well, their greenhouses are actually, it's like canvas over a metal structure, and it's on the earth.
0: Oh, interesting. So it is growing growing from the earth? Yes. Interesting.
1: He he doesn't do the work.
0: Right. Okay.
1: There's a loop. There's a
0: loophole. So, by the way, there is for sure a loophole. I didn't mention it before. I didn't mention it, it before. Listen to this. There's a loophole. Listen to this. You can turn it, it to a,
1: a, a non-Jewish, whether it's an Arab.
0: Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. It sells it to an Arab. But listen. There's another. There's another loophole that I didn't read before, but I was thinking about reading. You know what? I'll read it now because it's coming up. The other loophole is as follows. It says, it's something called, give me a second, Otsar, be, Otsar Bet Din. Okay? And Otsar Bet Din can be set up to distribute. Otsar means like a distribution, a, a rabbinical court distribution. And Otsar Bet Din can be set up to distribute fruit and pay the farmer for his work on distributing. So you're not, the, the farmer can't sell the fruit. But the farmer can take money for facilitating logistics. Are you with me on this? So essentially, the farmer gives the fruit away to a third party, to a bettin, who then distributes it to people, and he gets a cut in the distribution, but he doesn't get paid for the fruit. That's a little bit of the work of the loophole. The oats are din then distributes the fruit to the public and gets reimbursed for the expenses.
1: Rabbi, Susan, Oh, Rabbi.
0: That, oh, I, hold on one second, sec, yeah. we
1: we're learn that like if we're ordering, we spoke about it, if we're importing yeah. fruit from Israel, we
0: should. We've got to be careful. So is it, doesn't that come into produce? Yeah, it does. Again, unless an Beton was set up, etc. But I think even then, <laughs> it has to be eaten in certain places. Uh, it's, it, it becomes very questionable as to where, what, and when you can eat it, and you have to know which field it's coming from. It's right. complicated. Yep. Uh, Dina Malka. Oh, I, I didn't catch what Donna
1: said about the, with the greenhouses attached to the ground. I didn't...
0: Well, I mean, she can explain it, but my understanding is that they have technology, but it's still using the actual earth to grow. They're they're growing tomatoes, right? Right. Tomatoes, yeah. The they best.
2: Grow from the earth.
0: The best tomato.
2: I, I, I don't. I don't live in Israel, and I didn't plant my garden this year.
0: See that? Uh-oh. You're you're living the spirit. You're living the spirit of the law. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I so also, Rabbi, yeah. Joy, sure, yeah.
1: In the case of like where down in Byron, Georgia, where they have. They pioneered hydroponic plants. These plants don't grow in soil. They are suspended off of a a technological system that just has nutrients that consistently flow by, and so they are not soil-based. So would that, if that a plant like that in Israel, would that then be exempted from the laws of Shemitah?
0: My, I believe that it would be exempted. I'm hesitant to say that definitively, but my... The nutrients come from the soil. Nutrients come from the soil, yeah. But the question is, no, if it's they not come from the water. I listen. I hold on one second. Timeout. I don't. I don't. This let let's. I, I'm not sure how the technology works. I but because it's not in the ground, I'm gonna say that I would lean toward. It's a pro. The, the land should rest. Is, does this mean the land's not the land's not resting if we're doing hydroponic? I don't know. I, I it, some. Listen, somebody can Google it. Everyone's on a computer. I can't do it right now. Google hydroponic and shemitah. See what comes up. I'm sure it's discussed in, in, in the halachic text. Okay, now, let's continue because I do want to get to some more, uh, some more details and more hakiras of gavra and hefza, whether it's the person or the object, in this case the land, vis-a-vis shemitah. So the next, the next area of conversation will be regarding the, what, what to do with the fruits. Right, So I, I mentioned before, the owner of the field cannot stake ownership in the actual fruit in the seventh year. Right? What happens to the fruit? It's considered to be hefker, ownerless, and anyone, anyone can enjoy those fruits on the seventh year. The owner can enjoy some, but anyone else can walk in and grab whatever they want. It's free for all. Here's the question. That idea that the fruits are ownerless, okay, that idea that the Shemitah, year fruits are ownerless, is that Gavra or Hefza? Is that the person who declares it ownerless? Or automatically the land itself is ownerless without any such declaration by the owner? Are you with me on the difference? Does the owner have to say, behold, my my fruit, my produce is available, or... Does it happen even without the declaration of the owner? Yeah, That's, I'm, huh? I'm so let's take a look. Let's take a look at the sources. Okay? Let's take a look at the sources. This is going to be text 5A and 5B. Okay, I'm going to pull this up on the screen. You guys have it in your booklets on page 61. But in the se- this comes from the book of Exodus, the first mention of Shemitah. But in the seventh year, you shall release it Aha, you shall release it and abandon it. The poor of your people shall eat it, and what they leave over, the beasts of the field shall eat it, Shall eat. so shall you do to your vineyard and to your olive trees. But the Torah says, you shall release it and abandon it, which implies that who does, who makes it ownerless? The person, you, the farmer, you're the one that has to render it ownerless officially. However, or maybe not however, text 5b, Maimonides writes, It is a positive commandment to divest oneself from everything that the lamb produces in the sabbatical year. In other words, the mitzvah is, there. there is a mitzvah to let it go. Declare it ownerless. And listen to this. Anyone who locks his vineyard or fences off his field in the sabbatical year has nullified a positive commandment. This also holds true if he gathered all his produce in his home. So if, an o- if, the- if a field owner says, you know what? Shemitah ahin, shemitah aher, I don't care. I'm putting up a, f- a locked fence around my field. Good luck. The Torah says anyone can eat. And I say, scale my barbed wire fence around my, right, over my locked fence body. Spike fence. Not, spikes with Spike electric. Fence. Right. Oh, a spite fence, exactly. Electrified fence. Not going to happen. Right? So, the t- so Maimani says that person has nullified a positive commandment because the Torah says, allow people to eat it. And you said no, so you, you violated a positive commandment. And this is true also if, you, if he gathered all the produce into his home. Imagine he goes to the field and takes everything for himself. And he says, sure you can go in and try to get it. There's nothing left. I took everything. Again, this, o- this farmer nullified The positive commandment. Instead, he should leave everything ownerless, thus everyone has equal rights in every place, as the verse states, and the poor of your people shall eat it. That is Rambam. The question is, again, does it require his effort to declare it ownerless, or is it automatically declared ownerless? What's the difference? Is it Gavra or Hefza? Does he have to do something about it? Or is it automatic whether he does it or not? It belongs to everybody. The Nafkamina, the difference in halacha would be, text 6, the minchat chinuch writes the following, text number 6. One way of understanding this mitzvah, the mitzvah of, of the crops of the field, the produce being ownerless and available to everyone, is that it's addressed to the person, the gavra. Namely, the Torah commands the landowner to declare his produce ownerless in the seventh year. That would be the person. Thus, if he declares it ownerless, it indeed is. But if he doesn't, look at this, if he doesn't declare it ownerless, it is not. If you say that it's up to the person, then if he declares it ownerless, yes, great. If not... Then it's not ownerless. While he is still considered to be in violation of the mitzvah because he was supposed to declare it ownerless, the produce nevertheless still belongs to him and it's not up for grabs. As such, anyone who helps themselves to the goods is stealing because the owner did not make it ownerless. Think about the case. Imagine the guy puts up a fence and he says, I don't care what Torah says, <laughs> I, it's still mine. I don't care. The Torah says it's everybody's, I don't care. It's mine. Somebody climbs the fence in the middle of the night and takes an apple. Did they steal or not? Bottom line, is it theft or not? If it's up to him to declare it ownerless and he didn't and the guy took it, it's theft. Because even though that guy did a sin, that doesn't mean that you can steal from him. That guy was supposed to declare it ownerless, but he didn't. You can't steal from him. Or perhaps, the other way of looking at it, or perhaps this rule of ownerless produce doesn't imply that the owner has anything to to do to make it ownerless. But rather, everything becomes ownerless automatically by divine decree. The only way the owner can violate this is if he actively locks the gate of his field and vineyard. Accordingly, if someone were to take the produce against the will of the owner, i.e., if he would climb the fence and take the produce, it would certainly belong to him as it is ownerless. So this is the two ways of looking at the mitzvah of Shemitah vis-a-vis declaring it ownerless. Does it have to be declared by the person or, vis-a-vis the land itself, seventh year comes in, automatically it is ownerless. And the la <laughs> lalacha, the difference in Jewish law practically would be in a case where the owner doesn't want to follow the rules of Shemitah and he puts up a fence, he locks a fence, he locks the walls or a fence around his field and someone climbs the fence and eats an apple. The question is, did he steal or did he not steal? So if you say it's up to the person to declare it ownerless and this guy didn't because he doesn't care about the law, right, so therefore, it still belongs to the owner. And this guy who took the apple is a thief. A thief from a guy who, who, who's not following the law, but a thief nonetheless. Whereas if you say that the land itself, the of the land itself, becomes ownerless, and the produce becomes ownerless in the seventh year, then even if the owner of the field, even if the supposed owner of the field wants to put up a fence and he puts up a fence, whatever, doesn't, doesn't make the fruits his, it's still ownerless. And if somebody climbs over the fence and grabs an apple, they did not commit a theft. Yeah.
2: So is the seventh year significant, like seven days to create?
0: Yes. So seven is like a cycle, exactly. Seven is significant in the sense of a complete natural cycle. There are seven days of the week, seven years of sabbatical cycle, seven heavens, Seven, yeah, seven spiritual, seven heavenly bodies. So there are different, you know, things come in seven when it comes to nature. Seven is considered to be a very natural, a natural, a a a number of nature. Eight is considered to be a supernatural number, which is why Hanukkah is, of course, eight days. It's a miracle that transcends nature. But be that as it may, nature is marked by sevens. So the point of all of the above is that there are a lot of details when it comes to the laws of Shemitah. There are a lot of details about how to let your land rest. Um, what kind of fruit and what to do with the peels and what to do with the water bottle that you wanna just get rid of in the middle of the field and uh, how to get rid of, not how to get rid of. Um, we had questions about the, do, you, do you have to declare it ownerless or is it automatically ownerless? And um, uh, what can you hire someone else to work the field or can someone else work the field of their own accord and, and you let it go or is that a violation? so many details with regard to the mitzvah of Shemitah. And it seems like a simple mitzvah at the surface until you get into the minutiae of Jewish law. And a person, not a person, yeah, you and I might think that it seems to be a little bit of a buzzkill when you get into the details of a mitzvah. It's like every mitzvah, it starts off nice and general, and then by the time we're done in the code of Jewish law, it's like drilled down to the detail, and it almost seems like it's killing the spirit of the law. It's like, you, know, I, you probably know this, because I, I think I've mentioned it, and you, probably, you, you may have studied it elsewhere as well, that the code of Jewish law talks about how we're supposed to get dressed in the morning. First, the right arm, leg, etc., then the left. You first put on your right sock, then your left sock, the right shoe, then the left shoe. But when you tie your shoes, you tie the left one first, so you go right, left, the left, right. It's like, are you kidding me? So many details. Halacha, Jewish law, is so detailed. So detailed. I remember there's a, there's a comedian named, I think his name is Elon Gold. I think that's his name. He's Israeli, American, Israeli. He's hilarious. He's like if Xmas was a Jewish holiday. Can you imagine what that would look like? It's like imagine you would have to cut the tree down at a certain type of year, time of year. The tree would have to be between this height and that height. You would have to hold it a certain way when coming into the house. You have to walk with the right shoe over the, the right foot over the threshold. Put it down in the southwest corner of the house, not too close, not too far from the wall, like specified exactly. You know, if the lights are too dim, it's no good. If they're too bright, they're no good. If the decorations are this color, it's fine. If it's that color, but that's how Allah is, right? That's yeah. what Jewish law is, yeah. right? In, in in normal areas of life. It's not so detailed. It's like a tree is a tree. Whatever. In Judaism, well, we don't have Xmas trees, number one. But number two, what we do have is very precise. A Ho Oh, a lulav. Whoa, slow down, cowboy. You want to get a palm branch for Sukkot? Time out. Very specific. You want a citron? Great. Be prepared to spend through the nose. You want a myrtle and a willow? Precise. Matzah. Great. Matzah not so fast not so fast it's got to may- be made precisely this way that way, holes, 8 under 18 minutes the whole, a, whole, a whole rigmarole everything tefillin, black boxes, perfectly square handwritten parchment sewn with sinews of an animal it's like the level of detail about what renders something a mitzvah versus not a mitzvah, kosher versus not kosher is elaborate Shekita, you want meat? Oh, you want kosher meat? Good luck, Charlie. It's complicated. You got to shech the right animal the right way. It's got to be healthy. You got to check it. You got to salt it. You got to soak it. You got to soak it and salt it. You have to make sure that all the blood is out. You got to cut out the, the parts that are not kosher. Every mitzvah is so detailed. It's so detailed.
1: Just washing hands.
0: Hand washing. You think it's OCD. Wash, 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 wash. What's going on? Oh, sorry. That's in the morning. And then before bread, it's wash, 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 wash. Got to make sure it's clean. It's like... It's like, it's a neurosis almost. Where does it come from? Chas it's not. Where is it coming from? Rashi tells us, Rashi tells us, from this mitzvah, the mitzvah of Shemitah, we learn that all the details of all the mitzvot were delivered from God to Moses at Mount Sinai in the original communication, which teaches us an absolutely mind-blowing lesson. You see, sometimes we think, does God really care how I do the mitzvah? Does God really care? If I more or less get it right, like, isn't that enough? Like, I more or less, like, you know, I'm in the right direction. Should be enough. Yeah. Comes along Rashi, and Rashi says, Why does the Torah tell us that God gave us the details of Shemitah at Sinai? God gave Moses the details of Shemitah at Sinai, of the special at Sinai, to tell us that just like those details were specified by God to Moses at Sinai, every mitzvah, all of its details were specified. What does God want? Yeah. Sometimes you think, well, what does God want? Did we get carried away? Did we lose the plot? Rashi reminds us, no. God loves the details. God loves the little touches. You ever buy a cappuccino? I'm not a coffee drinker, so excuse me if I got the drink wrong. But you ever buy a drink in a coffee shop and they make the little, uh, the little thing? Heart. Yeah, leaf, a heart, a situation, right? A whole, is that a cappuccino? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, cappuccino. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cappuccino. Yeah. Good. A latte Easy. Or a cappuccino. Uh, latte? They do to all of them. All of them.
2: You, but only latte or cappuccino. It's just like regular coffee doesn't. Doesn't
0: have pop. the milk. Doesn't have it's that froth. Okay. So something that has that foam. So whatever. The point is like this. Sometimes you just want the coffee. I'm just going to call it coffee here, right? And and that is a flourish. And it's like a detail. Okay. I didn't need it. But sometimes, sometimes, oftentimes. Somebody might care about the details. If you care, let, let, me, let me reframe it. Let, let, uh, I think maybe I'll say it a little bit more clearly. Give a better, a better analogy. Imagine someone you love wants something. They ask you for something specific. And you come back to them and you say, look, I know you told me what you want, but yeah, I decided this is how we're going to do it. Yeah, that's not a, that's not a good, <laughs> that's not good. Yeah, especially right. So if you're a Jewish person, it's like, oh, you got it wrong. Take it back. I've said this story many times. I was in was it Boca? I think it was Boca. A, a kosher restaurant, and some Jewish Bubbies were there, and they were giving the waiter a run for his money. Oh, the food was not right at all. It was not right at all. It could they they could and then the waiter went back to the third time and one of them says the ultimate line could have made it better ourselves like oh you get found i feel bad for the restaurant but it's so jewish right the details it's not it's too hot it's too cold It's us do this It's us do that right what is a what does a waiter say at a kosher restaurant is anything okay yeah. right that is everything okay is anything okay Is anything okay you know why what do you call a well-balanced jew someone with a chip on both of their shoulders so like it's there's always That's a good one. i'm here all week Try the brisket. Anyway, the point is like this, that the details do matter. Not always, but when they matter, they matter. And in relationships, details matter. In a relationship, when someone you love specifies details, to not get that right means that you're not paying attention. To not get it right means that you're not exactly honoring the relationship. And again, not in a manipulative way where somebody should like, make it so impossible to get it right and it's a game. No games. We're not talking about games here. But just very simply, when you love someone, when you're excited about something, when you're excited about doing something for someone you love, you're going to likely pay attention to the details because you want to make it beautiful. You give a gift to someone you love. You don't just give them a gift. It's in a box, it's got wrapping paper, it's got a bow, it's got a card, it's got all the flourishes, all the flourishes. Why? Because the details matter. When it comes to a mitzvah, what's important? Sabbatical year or all of the minutiae, all the details that we discussed? Comes along Hasidic philosophy and tells us God loves the details. And this is derived, this is learned from, it's extracted from the Rashi and our Torah portion. Just like God communicated the details of the sabbatical year to Moses at Sinai, every mitzvah, God communicated the details to Moses at Mount Sinai. God loves the details, and He clarified them from the get-go. They're original communications, i.e., they're what God really wants. Let me, let's read this inside. This is the Rebbe's take on it, a beautiful way of explaining it, but let's look at, the, let's look at these teachings inside. Um, There's a longer text, text 8a, which I don't want to read. Maybe I do want to read. Okay, I'll read this. God desires, text 8a, 64. God desires that we fulfill the mitzvot at a deep, absolute level. In other words, God is entirely invested, so to speak, in his desire for us to fulfill the mitzvot. This will exist independently, entirely one side. In other words, from God to us. As such, this will is not subject subject to change or expiration. Rather, it is absolute and eternal. What then did the sages mean when they stated what does God care, where precisely the location of slaughter takes place? If the will invested in a mitzvah is God's deep-seated desire, of course he cares. The answer is our sages' statement is only on an external utilitarian level. However, at the deep, absolute, and one-sided level, so to speak, God most certainly does care about the details of every mitzvah. After all, a mitzvah is a manifestation of God's deepest one-sided desire. And in that state, God wishes that the mitzvah be performed in a specific way, regardless of anything or anyone else, period. As such, only when performed with precision does it reflect God's true will. Again, it's like doing something for someone that you love, and they ask for something specific. That's what they want, 8B. The Rebbe explains, in other words, even the tiniest details of a mitzvah are part of this one-sided absolute desire reflective of God's true, absolute nature. In other words, it's what God really wants. And take a look at how the Rebbe continues this thought in text 9a. The innovation in our Torah portion, in other words, what we're learning, the novel idea in this week's Torah portion, is that its rules and finer details were set at Sinai. Even the details and the minutia associated only with how to carry out a mitzvah, they too are part of the real mitzvah, namely that deep one-sided godly desire. That Thus, they too were stated at Sinai a one-sided godly overture. And if you're wondering what one-sided means, I, I don't even know what they mean when they translate as one-sided. It's not what the Hebrew says. They, they mean it's coming from the essence of God. I don't know why they called it one-sided, but it means it's coming from, from the top down. Text 9b. Oh, so... All right, we're going to hold 9B for a second, and let me just add one more point to this. So what we've said so far, and we're almost at the end, what we've said so far is that God wants not just the, the mitzvah in general, but also the details. And when we do the details, when we study the details and observe the details, it, it's part of our relationship, our love with God. And that's a beautiful thing. The question that Donna asked to be in the class was, all of this is true and wonderful. We accept, maskim, we accept all this to be true. But why, was the laws, why were the laws of Shemitah, why, why do we learn all of this, why do we learn all of these ideas from the laws of the sabbatical year? So to this, the Rebbe explains the following. The sabbatical year, and I, I dropped the clues earlier in today's class. The, sabbat, the, the observance of Shemitah, the sabbatical year, was one of the last mitzvot to come into effect for the Jewish people. Think about it. A lot of the mitzvah they were able to do right away after they got to Torah. But this mitzvah would only be once they entered the land of Israel, which would be 40 years later. And not only year one, it would only be year after seven years, right? Because Shemitah is only the seventh year once you enter the land. So this mitzvah was going to be 47 years out. And yet God told Moses all the details of the mitzvah of Shemitah at Sinai in anticipation for something 47 years later. That's called planning. And what does it tell us? It tells us that those details that will only come to fruition, only be possible in half a century century later, those are relevant to God in the present at Sinai. God cares about those, those details, and those details are relevant to Him. And this goes to show us how beautiful and how treasured every detail of every mitzvah is. The takeaway for us is to cherish the mitzvot. Sometimes we think of a mitzvah, and in general terms, we're excited about it, but once it comes down to the details, we're like, uh, I don't know. There's a, there's a lot to unpack here. seems like a lot of protocol, a lot of, a lot of details. You know, I'm not, I'm not feeling the details. And it seems like, you know, the details make it so technical that it loses the spirit of the mitzvah. I don't feel connected. So today, to, the meditation from tonight's class is, On the contrary, on the contrary, the details of a mitzvah, the details of a mitzvah represent how God is invested in this down to the last detail. God says, I want the cappuccino with the, 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 um, the, uh, the milk. What is it? The froth, what is it called? The froth, 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 steamed, froth milk with design (laughs) of the leaf. I want the leaf design." can tell what i want right i'm into the leaf the leaf design has got the leaf with the line and the jagged jagged leaf uh things that's what god wants when he wants a mitzvah he doesn't want a general amorphous idea like i would just want people to be good god has a vision for what what our relationship looks like with him and with each other and when we hit that vision in its details that's true love think of a mitzvah as an act of love Between us and others or between us and God? It's an act of love. And in acts of love, the details matter. Especially when the one who you love, the one who you love, specified those details. That's what Rashi means on a deeper level when he says that God enumerated and delineated and specified all the details, even the mitzvot, that would happen 50 years from now. God elucidated all of those details at Sinai because those details matter. Practically speaking, what's the resolution? My suggested resolution is find a mitzvah that you love and find a detail that maybe you haven't been so you know, careful about or so into. Find a detail of that mitzvah and own it. Right? Nail it. I say nail it. Like, grab onto it. Grab onto the detail of that mitzvah. One mitzvah, And one detail that you can hold on to. And let that detail of that mitzvah be your expression of love for God. At the end of the day, Shemitah, the sabbatical year, was all about gratitude. Expression of love. We let the land go for a year because we recognize that God's in control. As I mentioned before, God's in control. This is God's field that God let me use for six years. The least I can do is turn it over to God for year seven, allow everyone to enjoy it and not, have to, and not feel the need to work it. In our lives, too, let us turn over some parts of our life to God in the sense that we dedicate ourselves to a mitzvah with the details. Of course, that requires us to know the details of the mitzvah. If you have a mitzvah that you're, you're, you're curious about, you can reach out to me and we can explore some details together. Or you can use my, one of my favorite colleague rabbis, Rabbi Google. And just Google your favorite mitzvah with the details. You can often find guides for mitzvah on Chabad.org and other websites. Make sure it's a reputable, reputable website. If you have a question, right, email me. I'm happy to, to you know, thumbs up or thumbs down the link. So check it out. Find the mitzvah that you love. Get some details going. Put a bow and a ribbon and wrap and, and the tissue paper with the box, right with the card, and give that to God this week make it beautiful. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for Torah Studies. I hope you enjoyed tonight's lesson. I hope it inspired you, and I hope that we'll all do something. Do a mitzvah with a little bit more energy, a little bit more love, a little bit more attentiveness, because at the end of the day, that's how we build relationships. All right, questions, comments? It's
1: it's 46 years, right?
0: Well, at Sinai, it would have been year one, right? well you're right because it would be the beginning of the seventh year correct correct
1: I'm just asking is 46 is there something with Kabbalah with that
0: 46 I don't believe so I know that there's 42 yes, and, that and 49 right 42 and 49 40 of course we know 40 42 49 46 or 47 I don't know not I ringing a, not ringing a bell okay I of Memvav Moo I don't know yeah you
1: call it a seven. Yeah. Seven,
0: seven, seven. Jackpot. Judaism's. Oh, there you go. Jackpot of seven. You see seven. <laughs> three sevens. Chazaka means like beautiful. Seven, seven seven. Yes, Ray. Um. Okay. So, um. Mazel tov. Um. My daughter. My
2: granddaughter. Yes. Sarah Klein.
0: Mazel tov. Mazel tov. A few days ago. Yes. Mazel tov. To, um, a young man named Yisrael Feinstein of
2: the Neighb. Beautiful. And I'm very happy. <laughs>
0: it's not quite a week yet, but anyway. Mazel tov, mazel Lots of nachas, and just continue to enjoy the simchas. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. Any? So were
1: we all invited to the wedding,
0: yes.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> Everyone's invited, I'm especially like. especially if it's in a shemitah year. You can just crash the wedding and take the food because. Oh, I'm kidding. Maybe not. You just check in, check it before you do that. I'm kidding. Yeah, Fred. Does mm-hmm.
2: this include the rabbinic uh, uh, things that they they have added to the midst of?
0: I would, I would, I would say it does. Why? Because the Torah says God says to listen to the rabbis, which right. means that if your if your beloved says, you know what, do me a favor. This is what I'd like, and you know. Make sure you're doing it the way that so-and-so has, you know, articulated. So part of that vision is to do it with, with, with all those details. So yeah, I mean, the, 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 way to, to, the way to know the details of the mitzvah is straight up to learn the Code of Jewish Law. And there's an abridged version known as the Kitzer Shulchan Aruch, which is the consolidated version of the, of the Code of Jewish Law, which is available in Hebrew or English. And it's, it's fantastic. It's a great study. You can probably find it online somewhere. Just look for either Kitzur Shulchan Aruch or the abridged version of the Code of Jewish Law, and you'll get all the details, including... It's the
1: Reader's Digest version.
0: Oh, exactly. Right, exactly. It's the Reader's Digest version of it. Um, it's not fully comprehensive with all the details, but it'll certainly give you a taste of the details. All right. Any other questions or comments? Okay. It's great to see you all. Um, Oh, very important. Tonight begins a holiday. Tonight begins a holiday. Yes, it is known as... I, I, I don't even know if I want to say it because I didn't count the Omer yet. And if I say it, then it's almost like I'm counting. So it's the day after. Here's how I'm going to do it because the details matter. It's the day after. Tonight is the day after the 32nd day of the Omer. And that day that starts tonight into tomorrow is a day of celebration for two reasons. Number one, many, many, many years ago, Rabbi Akiva had 24,000 students who died in a pandemic, in a plague. And the dying stopped on this day, the day that's starting tonight. So it's a day in which we celebrate the plague ending. That's number one. And number two, the great rabbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, passed away on this day. And he said before his passing, don't cry for my loss. Don't mourn my passing. Celebrate my life. Which is a very powerful perspective. And so ever since, we celebrate his life. There are many customs that are done on this day, including lighting bonfires. The reason why we light bonfires, in fact, in Israel right now, in Mehron, it's yeah, yeah, massive. You can see live streams. Are oh, you on the live stream? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. 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 So there's massive bonfires in Meron and other places and it says that one of the reasons for this, by the way, Roshim Bar Yachai is the author of Zohar, the primary work of Kabbalah. It says in Zohar that when he passed away, a fire, a fire shot up to heaven and surrounded, surrounded his bed where he, where he passed away. A, a, fire, a big ring of fire broke out. So that's for the bonfire. So that's why we have a bonfire to commemorate the light, the fire that was uh, miraculously emerging when he passed away. Um, there's other customs associated with the day. Um, traditionally... Young boys around the age of three have their first haircut on this day. Many weddings happen on this day. Um, we, we go to live concerts because throughout the previous weeks of the Omer, we typically restrain from things like live concerts and wedding celebrations because of the passing of the 24,000 students, because of the pandemic, essentially, with Rabbi Kiva students that were the great, great leaders and scholars of the community at that time. So we mourn their, their passing, by kind of minimizing simcha, by minimizing joyous occasions. But on this day, all bets are off. And we, um, we not all bets are off. We, we celebrate many weddings and haircuts and musical concerts and bonfires and barbecues and celebrations. And so Chaban in town tomorrow, we are going to celebrate 5 to 7 p.m. in the, uh, the, back, the, the backyard, if you will, or the back area of Chabad in town behind the building, between the building and the belt line. We'll have lots of activities, including good food and music, live music, and celebration for the whole family that's going on tomorrow, 5 to 7 p.m. Otherwise, enjoy the day. It's a day associated with um, festivity as well as Kabbalah. So it's good to study. A little Kabbalah. We studied a little uh, mysticism tonight, a little, you know, some Hasidic philosophy, which is good. Continue the theme throughout the day and uh, enjoy the holiday. Great to see everybody. Take care. Karen, it's great to see you. And everyone as well. Shalom. Lila Tov. Take care, everybody.
2: Bye.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at intownjewishacademy.org and on YouTube at InTownJewishAcademy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.